You're listening to the Gesher Podcast, the place where the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities come together to talk about the things that matter. I'm your host, Ty Perry, ministry representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry here in sunny Las Vegas, Nevada. Thanks for joining me. You may have heard of the Israeli Defense Forces, or the IDF. They're the military force of the state of Israel, and they're on the front lines of defending Israel against their enemies, of which there are many. But you may not be familiar with the Friends of the IDF, the FIDF. They are the organization that supports the IDF soldiers themselves. I'm joined today by the director of the FIDF, Rabbi Stephen Weil. Rabbi Weil holds degrees from Yeshiva Universities and the Stern School of Business at NYU. Before coming to the FIDF, he was Senior Managing Director of the Orthodox Union, one of the largest Orthodox Jewish organizations in the United States. In September of 2020, Rabbi Weil was named Director and CEO of the Friends of the IDF, and he's here to talk with me today about the work of that organization. Rabbi Weil, welcome to the Gesher Podcast. Hi, it's a real honor to be here with you this afternoon. Thank you. Well, Rabbi, uh, I'm excited to talk with you about the work of FIDF. I've known about uh, the organization for several years, attended banquets and things like that, but um, I'm excited to talk with you about the specific work. But before we get to that, uh, maybe you could talk to me a bit about your personal and professional background. I know that your family came to the United States from Europe. Is that right? Yeah, we actually are refugees from Germany. We were in the same town in the cattle business. That's that's our business in upstate New York. And we were in that business in Germany for over 300 years in the same town until Hitler. And then we, you know, not all, most branches of the family did not make it out. We were blessed to be able to escape in February of 39. And after David came up and, and my father and grandparents left. And where did they come when they came? Did they come to upstate New York or did they settle somewhere else before that? Yeah, they actually, they, they couldn't get into America originally. They they got into, they had a cousin in England and they were there during the Blitz. Um, at that point, about a year later, they were able to get an affidavit into the United States and, you know, they had to earn enough money to make a down payment on a farm. So they stayed with my grandfather's sister in Long Island. And then from Valley Stream, Long Island, they headed up to about 50 miles from Buffalo, which is you know, beautiful dairy country, crop country, cattle country. Well, that I'm sure had something to do with your uh, interest in being a, an advocate for Israel and the Jewish people. Now you went to, you were, you're a rabbi, so you went to seminary. What motivated your, your desire to become a rabbi? So it, for undergraduate, I went to Yeshiva University and the schedule there was we would do Talmudic studies, biblical studies, Jewish philosophy studies till 3 p.m. And then our secular studies would take place, you know, throughout the afternoon and the evening. And I love the education. And they really, what I did was I was able to, while getting an MBA, to continue my education, you know, through the rabbinical program. My intention was not to use the, you know, that that degree. My intention was really for, for the growth, you know, personal growth, spiritual growth, intellectual growth. And uh, one thing led to another that I, they ended up hiring us as a rabbi. Myself, my wife is, is a teacher, me as a rabbi. Well, I know we have a, a shared uh, Michigan connection. You were a rabbi in the Detroit area. Was it in Detroit proper or? Yeah, Oak Park, just the suburb just north of the city. Exactly. 
Yes. So about 100 miles or so from where I'm from in the in the thumb. And I know you, you've you mentioned to me in a previous conversation that you've even been to Cass City, Michigan, where I'm from, which is, uh, that's something. That's that's pretty neat to have that connection. Uh, we used to love, we'd go up to the cattle auction in Cass City. And uh, there was a gentleman, Morris Flatt, of blessed memory, was actually a survivor, one of the maybe one of the rare survivors of his town, I think the only survivor of his family, Polish Jew. They were what's called Amshanover Hasidim. And, you know, for his 17th birthday, the, the SS gave him an all expenses paid trip to Auschwitz. He became a slave laborer there. He actually, you know, a miracle of miracles survived. And uh, he settled in the Detroit area and they had a slaughterhouse, corn belt beef, he and his son, Sam. And I had the blessing of going with them up to Cass City to the cattle auctions. <laughs> well, uh, I believe that uh, that God's promised land is Israel, but I think right after that, uh, God's country is the thumb of Michigan. So um, glad you were able to to be there. Well, Rabbi, what specifically brought you to the FIDF? I know you came back in September. Um, what what precipitated that? So I was recruited by some of their national board members. Um, I would say this, that the attraction was, it's a chance, you know, we've been a refugee, the Jewish people have been refugees for 2000 years, two millennia, you know, and in the annals of all of human history, never ever before has a refugee people returned to its ancestral homeland. Not that everyone left, there were always Jews throughout those 2000 years, but the majority of Jews were scattered, they were refugees, they were exiles. And this miracle of the ingathering of those exiles and returning to our ancestral homeland, I have an opportunity, a blessing now to help build that and help transform that. And I would just give you basic demographics. Israel went from being a minority Jewish population on the globe to being the largest Jewish population on earth. And if you look at the demographics, it's only growing. You know, the average Jewish woman and the average Arab woman in, in Israel are having 3.1 children. And what the miracle of, of over 9 million inhabitants, 9 million citizens, if that just stays the same, if it doesn't grow, you're looking at over 12 million people by 2050. And that's a land that the British said in the white papers, you know, think about the millions that were killed because they couldn't escape Europe. They had no place to go. The British said that that territory, meaning from the, the river to the sea, cannot tolerate more than 600,000 people. They claim there's not enough water supply and we're 9.1 million. You know, Israel's a water exporter is a function of the technology, desalinization. And uh, it's just been, you know, you, you see miracles in front of your eyes in that land. Absolutely. It's it's a, a place that if, you know, I've, I've gone several times and every time I go, it's surreal. I almost have to pinch myself because of the history, um, the modern miracle of the rebirth of Israel, but the historic, the biblical uh, history there as well. It's it's an incredible, incredible testament, I think, to God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. And I'm so thankful it's there. Tell me a little bit about the work of the FIDF uh, specifically. What is the mission of the organization? The mission is really to provide transformational solutions in terms of educational solutions as well as welfare for the poor soldiers. And if I could just elaborate, it's, it's really a people's army. It's a national service army. It defends the land. It also is the home front command. You know, when, when the various quarantines were taking place, 
It was the soldiers that were providing food, pharmaceuticals, enabling the, the country to survive. And it's a chance for these in gathering of the exiles. Think about the, the people in Israel. You're dealing with people who come from the Ukraine, people come from North Africa, from South Africa. They're coming from the Persian Gulf. They're coming from all parts of Europe, Western Europe. And then there are a number of them who've been living in Israel for five, six generations. And it's an incredible ingathering of, just to give you an example, we are supporting lone soldiers who have joined the IDF from 70 different nations from five different continents. So many of them, because Israel, the neighborhood that it lives in, you know, you've got radical Islam, both the Shia and the radical Sunni Islam that wants to annihilate Israel. You know, you hear the Palestinians, their chant, right? From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So you've got, you've got enemies from within the land and enemies from without. There's a huge percentage of the GDP that is spent just on defense, 14.9%. It's a miracle that Israel can survive as an economy. You know, the average European country is putting between 2 to 3%. The Germans put 2.2% of their GDP into, the, into their military Brits, it's about 3.5. The Hungarians, it's 1.1. But Israel has to spend 14.9. So they can't afford a GI Bill. They can't afford the, the, the kind of human quality, the kind of educational solutions. And they turn to us, to Christians and Jews, to Zionists on all corners of the earth, to partner with them. Because the goal really is one. And that is that these young men and young women who don't go to college right away, don't go to work right away, don't go partying or don't go traveling. They give three, four, five years of their life. The women give two years of their life. What happens? The first goal, the first goal is that we should provide for them the opportunity to give, to build Israel for the next 60 years. Let me give an example. The scholarships, we give full university scholarships to people who fought in a combat unit who come from a financially challenged family. It's the first time in the history of these families that anyone is going to university. And their model is not the American model. They have a European model, meaning if you go to college, to university, you come out ready to work in the workforce. You come out an engineer, you come out a computer programmer, you come out a psychologist, you come out a lawyer, whatever it might be. So you come out a person educated in artificial intelligence. So instead of these people being dependent or having no place to go economically, we provide for them what? We provide for them the opportunity to actually support a family, to continue building the dream of the ingathering of the exiles. That, that's, I'm saying it simplistically because there are many, many different programs that we do, but that's essentially what we do. And my understanding is that the organization itself was started by Holocaust survivors. Is that right? Yes, it was Holocaust survivors who realized that unless we have the ability to defend ourselves, can't rely on the world to defend us. And, you know, the history has proven that to be the case. And they wanted to make sure that these young men and young women who sacrificed their lives and years of their lives to defend the nation and defend the people. Think they, they traveled all the way to Uganda, to sub-Saharan Africa, to save people who are in a vulnerable place. That at least they should have the means and the tools that when they come out of the army, they, could, they can make it in the world. Job skills, education that'll get them, you know, the ability to support a family, et cetera. 
The Lone Soldier Program is something that is unique to Israel, um, and that is that anyone who is Jewish and is of is able-bodied can serve in the Israeli military, even if they don't live in Israel. Is that correct? If they, ha- you know, meet a certain psychological standard, a certain physical standard, yes. You know, if they don't meet a certain physical standard, they might get a position in the army, in the office, or in the intelligence corps, or in the you know, the, the technology wing of it, because today, you know, unlike 30 years ago, any military has to have a very, very sophisticated cyber defense and cyber security system. That's just part of what war is today. You know, imagine a hundred years ago when you have the introduction of the airplane. So now in military, it changes all of military. You have to have a an air force as well as ground forces. Today, you have to have cybersecurity and cyber defense, as well as the Air Force and the Ground Force and the Navy. So these young men and young women from 70 different places on earth, and some of them are Jews, some of them are Christians, you know, they, they're coming from 70 different countries. There's about 3,500 of them, and they want to defend Israel. They want to be part of the dream of the ingathering of the exiles, and it's their first step to citizenship. Because in Israel, it's, it's a national service. It's a people's army. So part of the culture is, you know, that you bonded with people who are not just like you. You bonded with others and that you gave back to your nation before you started your own path. And what role does the FIDF play in helping them? I know I've, I've heard from um, at, at galas that have been held here in Las Vegas for the FIDF stories from lone soldiers. And they've said they've been helped tremendously by your organization, how does the FIDF help them? So we fund them in many ways, whether it's, you know, airplane tickets to come visit their parents when they get off a couple of days, you know, that might happen once or twice a year, whether it is providing for them a food budget when they're not on the base. You know, if they get off for a weekend, they need a place to go. We fund the food. We build lone soldiers facilities for them. Because not everybody who's a lone soldier has a family to go to. By the way, there are 3,500 lone soldiers who are Israelis that don't have a family. Either that the parents are no longer alive or there's a dysfunctional family situation. So we build lone soldiers' homes. We fund them as well. Before they come to the army, many of them are not capable in terms of language, being fluent in language. If you don't really know Hebrew, like the back of your hand, he can't function in a combat unit. So there are special bases that integrate them, that train them and integrate them into the, the, the language of the army, the skill sets for the army. We fund that as well. I know I was speaking with uh, Shiri, who is the director here in Las Vegas for the local chapter of FIDF. And um, she was telling me about the impact that COVID has had on a lot of the IDF soldiers and the work that FIDF has been doing to help them during this time. What are some of the challenges that these soldiers are facing and how does the FIDF help meet those challenges? So so on a very basic level, they're in quarantine because if if COVID spreads throughout a base, that you're looking at a very dangerous situation for the security of Israel. So we're providing them basic things like hygiene kits, uh, washing washers and dryers so that they can do their laundry because they can't go home every second or every third weekend, depending on when they would get off. Uh, that's on a simple level. On, on other levels, we're trying to provide them, you know, with educational resources, 
you know, with other resources. For instance, they're going to need changes of clothing in that. And again, if you're on a quarantine, you know, you have to make sure that anything that comes in is not carrying the disease because you're, you're in very tight quarters. A lot of that is driven to us. The manpower division of the IDF shares with us what their needs are. And that's where a lot of that is driven. The other piece of it is the fact that these young men and young women can't come home. So they're at least fed on the base. But what happens if their parents, you know, Israel suffered so terribly. They used to have 3.8% unemployment before COVID. They're now on their third quarantine. 100,000 businesses have gone belly up just because no one can support these businesses. So just to give you an example, we've gone from supporting 8,000 soldiers who are beneath the poverty level. The number as of last week is up to 31,300 who are either below the poverty level or hovering at poverty, just above poverty. So a lot of it is we're actually transferring basic needs so that the parents can pay the electric bills, can pay the gas bills. You know, that's part of what it is because you know the government in Israel doesn't have the ability to just print money the way in America we have these you know, we're printing money, 1.9 trillion and this kind of a thing. Eventually, someone's going to pay for it. Eventually, there's going to be a devaluation of our currency. But very few countries have the kind of powerful economy that we have that can do that kind of a thing. So how do they suffer? They suffer with terrible unemployment. And there we're helping those families out. That's 31,300 soldiers that we're helping their families. And the FIDF has a unique exclusive relationship with the IDF. Is that right? In terms of uh, providing aid for soldiers, there are not any other organizations that are able to do what you're doing. Well, there, there are a lot of people running around claiming to do it. The only one that's recognized, the, the IDF recognizes one organization in every country, one in Canada, one in Mexico, one in Brazil. We, FIDF is the extension of the IDF in terms of, again, we don't do anything military. Military, we don't do. This is all about education and welfare. And that's what we take care of, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And if, God forbid, someone is wounded or there's PTSD as a function of an event that happened while they were in the military, we look after them after their time in the military as well. Well, it's an incredible work that you're doing. Um, and certainly you're supporting men and women who are doing a vital work in protecting the Jewish state. Um, I wonder, and I want to ask you this as a as a rabbi, um, one of my favorite verses in relationship to Israel is uh, found in the in the Psalms. In Psalm 121, verse 4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And I love that because it reminds us that it is the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, who keeps the Jewish people, uh, whether they're in Israel or in the diaspora. What is the relationship between God who, who keeps Israel and the IDF? Such a great question, Ty. The, the Hebrew, lo yanum velo yishan shomer Yisrael, you know, the garter of Israel. There's a, there's a senator, I think you've heard the name Chuck Schumer. He always jokes, Schumer is actually from that word shomer Yisrael, the garter of Israel. I'm not saying that this guy guards Israel, but, you know, that's the line that he uses when he talks about himself to a Jewish crowd, you know, to, to a Zionist Christian crowd. Um, it's, there's two terms in, in Hebrew. You see it in these terms in the Bible. You see it in the, in the literature of great Jewish scholars throughout the millennia. 
One is called bitachon. Bitachon is a conviction in God. Conviction that the God that created the universe, that sustains the universe, is the God of history and the God of providence. Ultimately, God determines you know, the fate of history, the fate of humanity of this world. That's bitachon. But there's what's called a dialectic. That's where we live in two poles, and those are not opposites. It's not like, you know, this one's Republican, this one's a Democrat, they're mutually exclusive, or this one's pro-life, this is pro-choice, they're mutually exclusive. There's an oscillation where we live in both worlds. So the one is bitachon, conviction in God, and the other is hishtadlut, hishtadlus, as a European Jew would say, or as an Israeli Jew would say, hishtadlut. What is that? That's where you and I, we engage and we use the talents that God gave us. Okay, That's our effort. What, just to use a simple example from the book of Exodus, there's an obligation for you and I to heal the sick, to fight disease. So you could ask, hey, listen, if God wanted this disease to kill people, then why are you manipulating in God's world? Why are you fighting God? You know, isn't God run this? No, the point is God empowers us. And that we see from the beginning of Genesis that God gave humanity, Adam and Eve, the, the charge, to subdue and to conquer and to lasso the, the, the strength and the energy of the world, turn it into technology, develop the world, etc. And the point is, is that every God-fearing human being lives in that dialectic, where on the one hand, ultimately God is in control, but the way that God is in control is he empowers us to use the blessings he gave each and every one of us not to use them for corrupt, inappropriate means, but to use those talents for positive. And the positive here, of course, is what? Is defending innocent people. That's the idea that God is the protector of Israel. He doesn't sleep or slumber. Well, how does he not sleep or slumber? Ultimately, he empowered us. How could a little country like Israel that, you know, has a few million people till recently it had less than five million people, how could it stand up against over a hundred million you know, Sunni and Shia enemies who were enveloping it on all sides. It's just Vegas wouldn't give odds, right? There's no, there's no casino that would have given odds on the survival of Israel. And that was the argument the United States State Department used against Harry Truman. All you're going to do is infuriate the Arabs. They don't have a chance, those Jews. Well, that's the Shomer Yisrael, the garter of Israel, who doesn't sleep or slumber. Uh, so how did we do it? We got, you know, the Czech Piper Cub, uh, people in America, despite the embargo that shipped armaments, they trained these young men and young women to defend the land, and, and they suffered terribly. One percent of the population, 6,000 of 600,000 died in that war of independence. I mean, in American terms, could you, that's, that's over 3 million people, 3.3 million people dying, but they survived. The attack of, at that time, it was five Arab armies that attacked them. Somehow they figured a way of surviving. And that's the combination of the two. It's a, your question is one of the more powerful questions that we ask in how we're supposed to conduct ourselves on this earth. You know who the author of Psalm 121 was? Was it King David? King David. Yes. Okay. Here you got one of the greatest warriors, forget a Jewish warrior, one of the greatest warriors in history. He's the one that proclaims that he's not the garter of Israel, but the Almighty is the one who guards Israel. A lesson for all of us. It's amazing because when we think about um, the political wranglings um, of the world, they're important. And, and to downplay the importance of politics would be a, a grave error. But we are always going to wrestle with God's sovereignty 
and man's responsibility. And I think you put it so well when you talk about the two poles, that they're not opposites, they are working together, and that that God would use his creation to accomplish his will is a humbling thing, or it should be. Well, Rabbi, I want to thank you for uh, the work that you do at the FIDF. You are, you are filling a gap there to help these soldiers. And um, if individuals in the U.S. want to somehow get involved or to, to aid you in some way, how could they do that? We have a, a website, FIDF.org. You know, they can reach out to FIDF.org or in, we're in 24 different cities. You know, if they happen to be in one of those cities, can definitely reach out to our offices. But I think I would probably start, you know, by going to the website. Um, that's one thing. The other thing I do want to say is I had the blessing long before I came to the FIDF of going with uh, Brigadier General Gruber. He himself, his parents were both survivors of Auschwitz. He was a miracle child. I don't. Th- his mother, you know, was a, one of the women who Mengele did experiments on. You know, it was one of those situations where her and her sibling he did experiments on. And it, I don't think she, her period returned till she was like in her young 40s. And he was born a miracle child. They didn't have reproductive endocrinology and fertility treatments when he was born. And he was really, uh, so to speak, a, and it was an act of God that, this, that she even got her period back and all the more so that she could get pregnant. Well, he is an incredible man. And his specialty is what, we, what in Hebrew is called Tohar Neshek. It's what we would call the ethics, military ethics. And he's a, he's a world-class expert in that area. And what he deals with in particular is something called asymmetric warfare. When the enemy is not wearing a uniform, you know, the kind of the heinous things that Hamas does or that Hezbollah does, where they, they send rockets when they're, they're working out of a hospital, they're working out of a school, and they're surrounded by innocents. And he speaks every year at West Point sometimes more than once. And he speaks every, most years at Colorado Springs to the Air Force. And I happened to be with him when he spoke to the graduating cadets in West Point to, this was three years ago. And I was in that room when all the graduating cadets after his presentation, give him a three, four minute standing ovation and the Q and A, and they're just flabbergasted at, at, at how Israel actually endangers or puts its own soldiers at risk that there should not be collateral damage. And if I can just share with you some numbers, you know, and this is never the story that you'll hear on places like the BBC or CNN. You won't hear this from the New York Times or the Guardian. The most, when it comes to asymmetrical warfare, where again, the, the enemies are not wearing a uniform, they're not identifiable. So in terms of collateral damage, Innocents killed to, to terrorists, innocents killed to combatant. The smallest ratio outside of Israel was 23 to 1. It's when the British conquered Fallujah in the second Iraq war. The average in terms of America in Afghanistan and Iraq, because again, after the initial conquer, conquering Saddam Hussein, after that initially most of the fighting was against terrorists. It was Shia terrorists who were funded by the Iranians. And the numbers were what? The numbers were 30 to 1 on average, meaning 30 innocents died at the hands of an American bomb or bullet to combatant. What do you think Israel did in the last two Gaza wars? Two Gaza wars ago, it was 2 to 1. And in 2014, the last one, in Hebrew, it's called Suketan, 
in 2014, the summer of 2014, it was a one-to-one ratio. By the way, those are Hamas's numbers. It's not Israel saying that. That's the enemy saying it. And to a certain degree, Israel actually loses many young men as a function of they don't want to kill combatants. A place like Gaza has two, close to 2 million people. 50,000 are members of Hamas or Islam, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And the attitude is they don't want people to die. Not that these other people love the Jews or love Israel or love Christians. They don't. But there's 50,000 enemies. And they feel that, they're, that close to 2 million people are being hijacked by that group. But they don't want innocents to die. And he goes and he shows with video clips, he shows how things are done, decisions made in real time. And he gives many, many examples. And he'll stop the, the video and he'll ask the cadets, you know, how would you deal with this? Then he'll continue the video and explain what happened and why. And you don't, that is the Jewish values. That's the biblical values. That's the values of the Torah invested in a modern day military. And if people only understood that, and if people only appreciated that, the profound reverence and the profound respect they would have for the IDF, for its values. Yes, it's, a, it's, it's been called the most humane military on earth, and for good reason. And I think we're going to have to have another conversation about that so that we can go a little more in depth on what those uh, policies are like and, and how they reflect the, the teachings of the scripture. But until then, Rabbi, I want to thank you for your time. And again, thank you for the work that you and FIDF uh, do for the Jewish people, for the state of Israel. And may the Lord continue to bless you. Thank you very much. I consider it a privilege to have spoken with Rabbi Weil, and I appreciate the work he and his colleagues at the FIDF are doing for those on the front lines defending Israel. As the rabbi said, God is the keeper of Israel but he often uses human beings to accomplish his will. The nation of Israel is a country with faults, plenty of them. Just ask an Israeli citizen, they will be happy to tell you their opinion. But it's also a lighthouse in the midst of the dark sea that is the Middle East. It's a small but mighty democracy, a place where liberal thought is encouraged and where human rights are protected. The Israeli defense forces are the earthly protectors of that country. The Friends of the IDF do tremendous work in raising funds to help soldiers on the front lines, both those from Israel and those from throughout the Jewish diaspora. Evangelicals would do well to demonstrate their support for Israel by helping to meet the tangible needs of these men and women through the work of the FIDF. You've been listening to the Gesher Podcast. I'm your host, Ty Perry. For more information about me, visit ty-perry.com. For further information about the Friends of Israel, visit foi.org. Be sure to subscribe to this program on your favorite podcast platform to ensure that you get future episodes of the show automatically. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.